0: Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us tonight, thank you so much for being with us. It's an honor to have you, and we hope that we can encourage you and that together we can worship God. If you would be opening your Bibles to Malachi, the second chapter. Malachi, the second chapter. It's been a wonderful weekend. The teddy bear workshop yesterday was a great success. Also, a crew of individuals gathered to put the final touches on the playground for... Uh, that's been moved to the new area of the Tuesday-Thursday School. And there's been so much work done by so many of the congregation and those that are involved in the work of the Tuesday-Thursday School uh, for them to move into their new facility in the 2040 facility. And we are so thankful to God for that facility. Uh, He has blessed us tremendously at a time that we needed that blessing. And we're thankful to each one that's worked uh, to make that a part as you sacrifice in your giving and those that have made it uh, possible in your sacrifice of time and uh, in, in every way that that you serve God through this endeavor uh, tonight we several of the uh, Fried Hardeman alumni have uh, joined in together with Fried Hardeman uh, to host a sending off party for students uh, alumni from all over this area have joined together and several of you are here tonight And we want to welcome you, and we're thankful to have you here tonight. And we look forward to that get-together that will follow the services tonight. The word Malachi means messenger. Malachi had a message from God. When we consider the time period, it reminds us of how important it is for us to endure how important it is for us to continue doing the right thing, not only day after day, but please note this as it pertains to some things tonight that I think oftentimes we overlook. But not just day to day, but generation to generation. The remnant had finally been able to leave Babylon after Babylonian captivity. Later on, we'll even talk about why they ended there in the first place. As they returned... There are two prophets that worked tremendously in helping them build back, but yet the building back of the temple and building back of Jerusalem was slower than really what it ought to be, and they already at the beginning were becoming somewhat spiritually lazy. About 60 years after that, Ezra would come in and, and try to spiritually bring them up and to encourage them to follow the religion that God would want them to follow under the old law. Nehemiah would come in 13 years after that and help them build back the wall. And so Malachi, the very end of the Old Testament, 400 years before the New Testament events would take place, is coming in to make a final plea for the people as they have finally began leaving God again. And this time would be their final plea that we have in the Holy Writ from God to return back to what God would want them to be. The last couple of weeks, we've seen how important leadership is in that, how their leaders, the priests, the Levites, were allowing sacrifices that just should not have been allowed. Last Sunday night, we looked at the characteristics that God wanted the leaders to have, a leader that would be strong enough to stand in the gap. But tonight, we'll look at the treachery that the people and the leaders were bringing upon each other, and even upon the holy institution of marriage. And also, we'll look at the tears that were flooding the altar and even conclude with what it is to weary the Almighty God. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? To weary an Almighty God. What is it that was so much a problem in their life? Let's begin reading in Malachi, the second chapter, and we're in verse 10. Malachi, the second chapter, beginning at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? Notice here it's with one another. By profaning the covenant. What is that covenant? We'll look in just a moment. Of the fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. Speaking of marriage there. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, and being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. It is a powerful proclamation that God makes there in verse 11, as He says, that the holy institution which God loves, God loves the institution of marriage. When a couple unites in holy matrimony as God has designed it, that's not a situation of indifference. That's not a situation where God stands by. That's a situation where God is active. That's a situation that God is involved in. That's an institution that not only did he design back in Genesis, the second chapter, we see it recorded, but it is an institution that he has kept into motion even to this day and until the coming of Jesus Christ. It's an institution that he prospers. It's an institution that he blesses. And it's an institution that when individuals do it, it blesses not only the individuals that are involved in that family, but note this, it blesses the church of which those individuals are a part of, and it blesses the community that those individuals are a part of, and it blesses the nation that those individuals are a part of. I need to realize this, morning, this evening the blessing that marriage, the way God designed it, is not only to an individual at a point in time, but to generations to come. You see, to fully understand this, we have to stop and ask the question, how in the world is it that God said back there in, in verse 10 that they dealt treacherously with one another? Now, wait a minute. If an individual is going to deal in, in a wrong way in his marriage, why didn't God just say, you dealt treacherously with your marriage or you dealt treacherously with your spouse? Why did He say you dealt treacherously with one another as if to say other people, because that's exactly what God meant. I need to realize by principle tonight we can learn this. When our marriages are not what they ought to be, we directly affect the church. We directly affect the community. And we will have a direct impact on the next generation. You see, God, all along, if you want to be looking back to Exodus, the 34th chapter, I don't think we have a reading on the screen for these next few passages. If you have your Bible, Exodus, the 34th chapter, we're going to see a reminder beginning at verse 11, how God pled with the children of Israel from the very beginning of their existence and as they would eventually move into their own land. Here we're reading about where Moses was still setting up before the presence of God. He was about to bring down the the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and God had one more thing that he wanted to tell Moses to teach the people. Listen how powerful this covenant is. We're going to pick up in the middle of this in verse 10. And he says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite... Take heed to yourselves, lest you make a covenant with inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars. Now, if you're here this morning, you remember nations that were... Very active in idolatry, pillars were very much a part of many of their idols, pillars that held up their temples, pillars that surrounded their gods. And so here he's referring to that same setting. And he says, when you go into a land and you conquer that land for me, you destroy their gods and you destroy the pillars that surround that god. And the church is to be a pillar for truth, to hold up God in righteousness. And we read on. He says, cut down their wooden images. Skipping down to 15, he says, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods. And one of them invites you and you eat his sacrifice. Now notice this next step. And you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. And the passage continues from the very beginning, before they ever entered into the promised land, before Moses ever left the Mount Sinai. God says, I want to warn you. I'm going to give you a land that you're going to have to conquer. And when you go over to conquer this land, it's going to be full of idolatry. There's something you must do. Destroy the idolatry. And never, never let your children intermarry with those of idolatrous faith. What are we reading in Malachi? We're reading We're at the end of the old Bible, they're still struggling with this sin. Why were they ever destroyed almost as a nation with only a remnant being preserved in Babylon to begin with? Remember we began tonight by saying they finally, after 70 years, were able to return? Why were they in that situation to begin with? Let's read a passage that points out... Go with me, if you will, to Nehemiah, the 13th chapter. In Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, and if if you also could read in Ezra, in in the 9th and 10th chapter, these both are times where God is pleading through prophets for them to remember their past mistakes and not make these same mistakes again. But yet, they were making the very same mistakes again. We're going to pick up in Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, and listen in verse 23 and following. Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, beginning at 23. Turning a pages is a beautiful sound, isn't it? And in those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters from your sons or yourselves. And then he uses an example that is one of the examples that ought to shake you and I the most. He uses the example of the great Solomon. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him even to sin. If you want to make a note or go back and read 1 Kings, the 11th chapter, verse 2 through about the next six or eight verses is the description where God was dealing with Solomon, the great, one of the greatest kings to ever live, a king that when God said as a young man, ask for anything and he asked for wisdom from God, a king that God would say had the greatest wisdom of any man that ever lived. You see the point that we're trying to make? We're talking about something that strong individuals oftentimes make mistakes in. And that's in the way that they conduct their lives and marriages. Solomon first took upon a love for the women that God said not to love. And before he died as an old man, Solomon took upon some of their religion, building their temples for their gods and taking part in it. It is almost unthinkable that Solomon at an old age would worship an idol. How could that happen? It happened. Because he went against the very works of God. According to the language of Malachi 2, he dealt treacherously with the covenant of God, the holy institution of marriage which God loved. I want to give you a couple of passages tonight from the New Covenant. But there are passages that we have to deal with in our day-to-day life as we think about that of marriage. In 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, in 1 Corinthians the 7th chapter, he speaks to those that their spouses have died. And he tells... What he would expect, what God would expect in a future relationship of those whose spouses died. Speaking to wives here, in 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, and verse 39, he says, A wife is bound by law. This is 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, and verse 39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. It's pretty simple to understand. Oh, I've heard individuals try to explain away that last phrase, that really only in the Lord doesn't mean really only in the Lord. Friends, God has never had problems speaking where He has spoken and being silent where He is silent. He has spoken very clearly here. The marriage is to be among someone who is only in the Lord. We can read in the Scriptures to see how an individual gets into the Lord. We see that it's one that is baptized into Christ. And if one is in the Lord, they are part of the Lord's body, the church. They're faithful in the Lord. Not someone that was once in the Lord. Not someone who's not an atheist. But someone that is in the Lord. God, why would you want this? Why is it important? And he would perhaps saved from the same principle of Malachi 2. I'm trying to bring a blessing to families, a blessing to churches, and a blessing to nations. You see, the children of Israel, as they went about and they followed the way of idolatry, they lost their nation. Only a remnant existed. God allowed them to return. And again, they followed that same path And shortly, they were no more. It provides protection. Protection is what God offers. Let's go over a few more pages. 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. We're reading a passage in the New Testament that lays down as a perfect parallel. And as we read this, you'll see exactly what I'm speaking of here. This is a perfect parallel to the principle that we just read in the Old Testament. Even in the details here. 2 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, we're going to pick up reading verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So, we're talking about here relationships where an unbeliever comes together with a believer, and the relationship could be several things. He's not talking about just marriage here, it could be probably partnerships in business or other things where individuals are quote, married each other in certain affairs. But definitely, marriage would be the closest partnership that anyone would experience. And he says, in what communion, or could also be translated, what partnership has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now notice this. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. So as we come out, he's saying, don't intermarry. Don't go into partnerships. Once you come out of that, leave that behind. Now notice he says, Do not touch what is unclean, and I'll receive you. And now this close is just like this morning's lesson about the church being the family of God. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. God wants the spiritual family to be pure, but God realizes that marriages will directly affect the spiritual family. And so God says, I don't want an unequal yoking here. Now... This has been observed and even studied in the secular world. Uh, May of 2005, the Ladies' Home Journal wrote about a three-page article about interfaith marriages. About 22% of all Americans are involved in an interfaith marriage. When those marriages have children the divorce rate is three times greater among those couples than couples that share the same faith with children. The article went on to describe that oftentimes after the divorce, the battle of soul custody, S-O-U-L, soul custody, continues as long as the children are in their youth. God is trying to protect us. God is trying to offer what is best for us. God says you actually deal treacherously with your neighbors, with your church family, with your community. When you build a relationship that's not healthy, it has a direct effect upon so many people. But let's notice the second thing as we read down in verse 13 and following. <clears throat> we see also tears on the altar. Let's go back to Malachi, the second chapter, 13 and following. And this is the second thing you do. So notice, he's giving them a one and two. Sounds just like a sermon going here. Point number one you've married women of heathen, uh, heathen women of idolatrous uh, religions. But number two, he says, you're doing something else that that we have to address. He says, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard, God does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, now here's this question and answering that's been a a way uh, that, that the book of Malachi has been written, the style that it's been written. He says in 14, yet you say... For what reason? The answer, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Now the treacherous dealing is directly with a spouse. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did He not make them one? Having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks Godly offspring, therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Discussion has been, where did these tears come from? The tears that covered the altar so much so that God says, because there's so many tears flooding this altar, I will not accept this sacrifice. Some have said it was the tears of God himself as he was so disappointed in the way that Judah was dealing with their relationships as they were divorcing their wives that were their first wives, the Jewish wives, going out to commit this break of the covenant that God had given them all the way from Mount Sinai to not intermarry with heathen people. It could be God's tears. Some have said, no, I believe it's the tears of the wives. Now, in just a moment, we're going to read a phrase where God says in 16, I hate divorce. It's interesting to see the extremes in these two paragraphs. God speaks of the holy institution which He loves. And then He speaks of the altar that is covered with tears, and He says, I hate divorce. You know, in Matthew, the 19th chapter, we see that an individual can be divorced and God gives them a right to divorce. He gives them a right to marry again because of the fornication of their spouse. When I've sat down and talked with those individuals that are in that situation that their spouse has committed fornication, I can easily understand that the tears could be from the wives. I don't know of another situation in life where more tears are shed during times of divorce. Several times, I've had individuals to tell me, not in a vengeful sort of way by any means, but yet in a very sincere way. As tears were coming down their cheeks, them say, this would have been so much easier if they would have just died. There's a lot of things on this earth that's harder than death. And divorce is definitely one of those things. I believe that the tears were from God and the wives. I can't imagine if this is something that hurts families and churches and society so much that God wouldn't cry over it. And I couldn't imagine these women, that their husbands were divorcing them to go out to marry heathen women... I couldn't imagine them not crying either. So no wonder the altar was filled with tears. No wonder God's heart was broken. No wonder he said, I won't accept your sacrifice anymore. You know, it's that very same teaching that we looked at a few weeks ago in Matthew the 15th chapter, where the individuals had dealt wrong with their family, but this time it was with their parents. They dealt wrong with their parents. And so when it came time for worship, the Lord says, You draw near to me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. And then he says, In vain do you worship me. In other words, he says, I'm not going to accept your worship today because I've seen what your life has been through the week. And now God is saying the same thing to Judah here in Malachi He's saying, "Do you think that you can deal with your wife the way you just dealt with her and then come to the altar and offer an altar uh, an offering on this altar to me and everything be acceptable?" He says, "Absolutely not." All I can see is the flood of tears on that altar. I can't accept an offering at all. But also, he tells the treacherous dealings in 14 But then in 15, he gives the solution that I need to know. is always the solution when we want to start asking questions, well, how should it be? In a culture like today where divorce is so prevalent, really, how should it be? Or like when they came up to Jesus in Matthew the 19th chapter and asked, really, in their culture, how should it be, Jesus? Could a man divorce for any cause, for any reason? Here? No matter what the culture of the day was, he took it back to the beginning. You see there? And that's the same thing Jesus did in Matthew 19. Look in verse 15. But did he not make them one? When he's talking he, who's that? It's God. When he said made them one, at what time period is he speaking of? Well, of course he's talking about the time period that he made Adam and Eve. So he says, okay, Judah, we've got a problem. You're misunderstanding the way marriage ought to be. But we've got a solution. We're going to go all the way back here to the beginning and we're going to have a quick lesson in Genesis 1 and 2 again. How many eves did God make for Adam? Well, they would know the answer to that. One. How many adams did God make for Eve? He made one. Now, 20 or 30 years later, and we're saying this because of this text in Malachi. 20 or 30 years later, when that wife ages a little bit, Did God allow Adam to put away Eve and create a second woman that was younger? No? All right, well, let's go back to the beginning. That's the way God's always intended for it to be. One man, one woman, for life. Anything else is treacherous dealing. It's a violence, the next few verses would even describe, against the other We've seen treachery. We've seen tears on the altar. But what do you think could wear out an almighty God? Let's read this as we close this evening. Verse 16 and 17. For the Lord God of Israel says that He hates divorce. For it covers one garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say... Did you catch that? You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied Him? And the answer, In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now there's different ways that this could be interpreted, but almost all of them come back to the same thing. But one of the most popular beliefs is that the children of, of, or children of God here, Judah, had become so evil that of course God wasn't going to prosper them. But yet they could look around to the heathen nations and the heathen nations looked like they were doing good. And so Judah, having left God, but yet saying to themselves that they're still right with God, looks around and says, Look, God is prospering the wicked people and He's allowing the righteous people to suffer. Where's the God of justice? If that is, in fact, what He meant. No wonder it was wearing God out. They had openly defiled the clear teachings of God, but yet they would identify themselves as righteous people. I need to be careful. I need to be careful what I tell myself and make sure that I tell myself what God tells me. Not spin it, not change it, not modify it or adapt it. But simply take God at His word. Friends, tonight I need to realize that God, just as He says in Malachi, He's a witness of how we deal with our families. I can't go home and yell and scream at my family as if as if I was an ungodly person. And in some way expect to go to bed and pray a prayer to God and think of myself being spiritual. I can't go to work and deal in an unfaithful manner and then some way believe that God looked the other way and I'll still be a great Bible class teacher on Wednesday night. I can't picture myself as righteous and everybody else as wicked and fool God. Tonight, Let's make sure that the way we deal with our family, God would never say it's treachery. Let's make sure that when we come to worship God and to pour out our offering of worship to God, let's make sure that because of our dealings with our family, there's never tears on that altar. Let's make sure, beginning during this invitation song, that we speak the truth to ourselves. If you have sin separating you from God, Don't tell yourself tonight it's all right. Don't tell yourself there'll be another chance. Tell yourself tonight what God says. Today is the day of salvation. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the mission of your sins, won't you do that tonight? Allow today to be that day of salvation. If you have been baptized into Christ and you've allowed sin to separate you from what God would want you to be, We all make mistakes. There's not a perfect individual in this room. But we can all be forgiven. If You need to repent and pray forgiveness. If we can help in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.